Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello and welcome to University Challenge. Your starter for 10 is, which theme have we picked out here? Who are these strange beings? That was my Carl Sagan impersonation, just in case you didn't get it. This one is about the gaffer, whoever he may be. Pretty much every single soccer player we've spoken to had at least one incredible story about a manager that they'd played under. You are going to meet motivators, bullies, innovators and comedians. Sometimes... That's all rolled into the one guy. We should start and finish with two people who played under Jose Mourinho. It's fair to say that Damien Duff and Kevin Bridges don't have too much else in common on the footballing front, except Kevin's got one hell of a right foot, Damien. Eh? In between these two, Chris Waddle tells us what he now sees as the method behind the bullying of Arthur Cox at Newcastle United. Gary Mack will tell us how Howard Wilkinson transitioned Leeds United from a second division outfit to one capable of winning the English title. Joe Jordan shows us the revolutionary preparations that Don Reavy undertook. Peter Beardsley rooms with his Fulham manager, Kevin Keegan, in a flat above the chairman's shop. Can you guess where it is now? Who lives in a shop like this? Graham Souness hears a rare team talk from Joe Fagan and Terry Butcher nearly kills Bobby Robson. I wasn't taking you up for leaving. Uh, you'll be aware that Josie's emphasised this recently by saying that that side, you, and he names you, Killer Instinct. He said the Chelsea that he was sacked from, the Chelsea that he came back to, didn't kill games. And he said, you know, that's what we did, that's what Damien Duff did. He, and he talked about your attitude, he talked about your fearlessness, he talked about the fact that if you could get on a team and do a team and win... And that's him still talking about it all these years later. So all I meant was it was no way derogatory about the decision oh, no. to leave. I didn't know about that meeting, but when he said you'd be in my team, he meant it and he still feels that way. And I think that's a major, major... You can't put it in the bank, praise. And I think maybe through your career that's not been the thing you've sought yeah. most, but it's pretty sincere. It's pretty serious praise from him. Uh, yeah, I've said for me. I could put you in a situation you don't like. No, no, no. I just said it and then I've done yeah. it. Yeah, listen, for stupid, me, I like... And I love the man. Like, yeah, in the end, I said, listen, good luck, I'm out of here. But, uh, listen, the best two years ever working, I'm just... Was it fun? 
on a daily basis. Yeah, he's a funny guy, for starters, but, like, coaching, training sessions, unbelievable, like, frightening. Improved everyone no end. Like, it was more or less the same squad he inherited from Ranieri. I think he had a couple of additions, obviously Drogba, but Drogba struggled, really, for the first year. He, he wanted to go home, he yeah, it. But he just turned us into winners just straight away. That arrogance, that confidence just rubbed off on everyone. And just, I said, steamrolled the league for a couple of years. And the thing, obviously, whether I want to go into coaching or managing... The fact him leaving Chelsea this year and looks like he's lost the dressing room, I just find that staggering. Just There's no hope for any of us if, if he's losing the dressing room. We're on to an area where I, I, I need to be careful because uh, you know, I didn't play for him. If the people who play tell me it correctly, then maybe there's been a change in the man, a change in, in him. Yeah. That As phenomenal as he is, he's a human being. And I think in his attitude to playing and to life and to... And also the dark arts, sometimes if you, you know, if you wear the Lord of the Rings, if you wear the ring too long, it corrupts you. I think maybe some of those who encountered him when he came back to Stamford Bridge that second time found a change. Mm. So maybe we can put, or maybe I can put it down to the fact that it's not that, you know, something ridiculous has happened because Chelsea have lost a guy who's still the guy he was in 2004-5-6, is my interpretation. We all do that, we all change, for better or worse. And maybe, maybe it's going to give us all a treat where... Maybe he's in control of one half of Manchester next season and then Guardiola's in charge of the other half, which... Well, yeah, if I was a betting man, no doubt he has to end up there, especially after Guardiola's rival going to City. I said the only statement Man United can make is him and anyone else is would be wrong for me. I said there's only one man for the job there, it's him. Your, your talent was really clear throughout your school years and then you sort of... You know, it didn't happen because Coventry thought mm. maybe you were, I don't know, too small or whatever. It was just, you know, because you're height now. It's hard to understand. But a guy I want to ask you about, because he's very proud of, of your development, is Arthur Cox. Mm. And, and what fascinates me is that, you know, he says he bullied you. Did. Why did he bully you? And could somebody do that these days? He bullied us because he could see the talent I had. And he used to think I was, he thought I probably had an attitude problem. I didn't have an attitude problem. I was shy, very shy. And he thought I had an attitude problem because it looked like I wasn't interested because I never spoke. I never. So he must have thought, he's not bothered. When you come out of a, a factory work to go to a professional and all of a sudden you're training with professionals who you're probably watching or reading about in the local papers and all of a sudden you're training with them mm-hmm. from a non-league setup to that. You're just sort of thrown in. That's why I can see a lot of young players who get pushed aside and disregarded and said, no, nah, you just haven't got it. If you go on trial, I'm going on trial at Sunderland, it's uh, 18, 19. And I was petrified, you know, training with these pros and who you've it's been intimidating, watching. intimidating, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. And you always get one or two nice lads who will come up and say, oh, you know, enjoying it. If you, you know, Most of them just take it as if they think, well, you have, you know, you sort of go in there and you, you don't know what you're doing because they are natural to come in. The kids there, they put it on, they do this, they sit there. To you, it's like, what is this, you know? And it was just shyness, really. And Arthur, I think Arthur got the wrong end of where he'd come in, obviously took over from Bill McGarry, and, you know, the team was struggling, and he looked at the reserves, and I was just starting out, and I was on fire on the reserves. Pre-season, I found hard, because it was the first pre-season I've ever done, where you just thought, wow. I always said, pre-season was ridiculous. The way they ran you, Mo Farah wouldn't do as many miles as what we did, and... It was right. When I went to France, it opened my eyes up about pre seasons. But this was just like slog. 
you know, and I found it hard. I was still developing. I was skinny. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew working in the fact that uh, from 16, 18, I grew to, to my height, but I was like a rake. And he must have looked at this kid and thought, doesn't say anything, gets on with it, but lacks a bit of confidence. But to him, it was, maybe he thought, he's not that bad. What did he do? Everything was basically on my case. Whatever I did, I couldn't do anything right. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in training, you know, I'd go past two blokes and score, and he'd go, don't do it enough. It's not good enough. You, you do it every now and again. It's not good enough. Or your final pass, or your final cross, or your, your final shot, or whatever you did, if you did it right, it was, you don't do it enough. And if you didn't do it right, obviously you lost the ball, it would be, there you go again. It was just, whatever you did, you just thought, if I scored two, should have scored three. Eight great crosses in, should have been nine. So it was never a pat on the back. It was always, could do more. Always could do more. And for two and a half years, it was, this was basically the life of, I used to hide in the training ground. I used to come in and I used to sneak in the change rooms. I never used to go through because he'd, he'd pick on us for anything. Mm-hmm. So it was like, basically, at school, somebody grabbing you every day and taking your pocket money off you. Mm. He'd fine us for the slightest things. Why didn't that break you? Because I, 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 I believed I had the ability. And by the way, there was a lot of times I spoke to like, some of the older players and I used to say, I've had enough of him. Mm. I'm, I don't know whether I put a, a transfer request. And I'm thinking, you know, I, I just, I'm sick of it. And uh, it went, you know, and then Keegan, Kevin Keegan came, you know, and then we got promoted. It was basically that year we got promoted, uh, which was like two and a half years into it of playing, where he actually caught us one day and he went, pennies dropped. But then after that was sort of a, but I, I don't want you to take your foot off the gas, mm. you know, that type of thing. But he says, the pennies dropped, you're consistent now. Which yeah. for him, that, that must have been a big thing for him yeah. to say. Yeah, you know, it was like, what, you're actually praising us. It took mm. two and a half years to get a pat on the back. And he just said, you've got the consistency, you know, you've got, what he might have thought was attitude of, doesn't matter if it happens, does it matter? It, it did matter to us, it, but maybe it's my body language and the way I was, maybe that he thought I wasn't as interested or as um, focused or the passion and desire, what you need to go and succeed in football. I did have it, it was just I was shy, but he obviously took it the other way. This is out of equilibrium because it's going to be far more pleasant for me than it is for you, and I know that from experience, because, Gary, you, you've always been able to talk as interestingly and intelligently and elegantly about football as you were able to play it. Now, it's not final because you're going to go and improve that over the next hour. But I've always thought, or certainly it's intrigued me, I grew up, what I mean, mad about Aberdeen, which I still am, even madder as, as I get older and stupider, because of Eddie Gray, mostly, mm-hmm. really. Yeah, yeah. To a less extent, Joe and, and Billy Bremner and Harvey and, and I like Leeds. Yeah. <laughs> At a time, I felt like the only person outside Leeds in those days who liked yeah. Leeds because they. And I don't know if it's because Leeds's triumphs in Don Revy's day were resented. I've always felt your league title, mm-hmm. and let's underline that you worked in a Leeds team that was champions of England. I've never felt that there's as much affection and reminiscence about a damn good team, something like a damn good midfield. Do you think I'm onto something there that maybe it's I, slightly underappreciated? No, I absolutely agree with you 100%. You know, I don't think Howard Wilkinson has ever got the acclaim that he should have. He was the last English manager to win it. Mm-hmm. You know, and the way he put it together, the way he got himself out of the old second division, he got Vinnie Jones in, Chris Kamara, they come in, did a job, but instantly realised how great a job they did to get the club back into the top league for the first time in I think there was eight or nine years of absence mm-hmm. away that things needed to change they needed a different 
type of player to then carry on a threat into the top division. And that was pretty clear. He made that pretty clear. You know, he says, you're coming here and you'll probably replace Vinny, who's been brilliant to me. And if you can equal what he did, you'll, you'll done a great job. And, and that was the drive. And, and, and the first person that welcomed me here, you know, not a million miles away from where we're sat right now, mm-hmm. was Vinny Jones. Ah. And he knew I was brought in to replace him. But it tells you a little bit something different about the guy. You know, he was, he was a humble fella. And he sent a car to pick me up and he showed me the city in one failed swoop, you know, which ended up maybe in a late bar that evening. But he was, that's the type of guy Vinny was. It was a realisation that his type of player was, was needed to get Leeds out of the old second division. But then there was going to be a wee change on how Leeds were going to approach, you know, attacking the old first division. Yeah, there I was going to segue into because... I have a fascination about Don, and because you were there, because Eddie Gray, I thought was when I was growing up, I thought was a genius. I would have paid everything I ever had to watch Eddie Gray play because he was so good. But when you throw in um, yourself and eventually David Harvey and Gordon McQueen, Peter Lorimer, it leads what I said. I followed all the time, um, right from my earliest days. But I never really understood. I haven't really understood Don Revy well, and didn't know until very recently that. As a footballer himself, before we even talk about what he was as a leader or an organiser or a builder of a club and a coach, that he'd been a very, very good player. He was a football writer's player of the year in 55 at City. Described, I never saw it, obviously, as as a sort of Hidiguti, deep-lying striker. There's nothing new under the sun. We we all got very excited about Messi being moved deep. So if Bobby was his representative on the pitch... Describe the man that you met who, who signed you, having seen you playing at centre-half for Morton against Jeff Assel in a friendly, yeah. which would have been an experience at the time. Yeah, it would have been. It was the first and only time I played centre-half, but um, I think, he, he, obviously, he, um, he came with Morris Lindley that night. I'll, I'll never forget it. Uh, Anglo-Scottish singing. I must have done all right. I think we got a draw. But uh, he, was, he was a meticulous guy, someone that had a, a presence... Never missed a trick, knew everything that was going on. Somebody you would play for, someone who, who you would trust, someone you thought would uh, he'd look after you. Loved his football, loved his team, loved his players. Uh, he got a little bit of criticism, I suppose you could call it criticism, for his, um, his thoughts and his actions and his preparations on the opposition. I, I, I never thought that was a big deal, you know. I think it was exaggerated a bit. He, he, he did pay respect to the opposition. Uh, but no, if you explain what you mean by that, because there'll be a lot of people don't understand what he might have been criticised for in terms of his preparation. Well, there was, like, I think when he went to England and all these other players, um, they hadn't come across it before, where there was maybe a dossier on a player or a dossier on the team, mm-hmm. an, in, an insight into who you were playing against and how they played, what their strengths were, what their weaknesses were. And Don had that, but I can't really remember sitting down and getting a, a dossier in writing. They, he may have done it when he went to, to England. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe these, these players were, were there for three or four days. He maybe had, thought he had to get it in reprint. But I do remember sat there... We would have a, a, a pre-match meal. I think it was a, the Manor House 
in Leeds and then we'd come back down to Ellen Road and we would be in a, a, the lounge. He had a player's lounge in Ellen Road and we'd all sit down and he would be announced, he would go, I mean, then he would eventually announce the team, but he would, he would get us in there and watch the TV or lead up to Grandstand or whatever it was. And then he would talk through the game that they were going to get involved in at three o'clock. And he would maybe enlighten you on what he thought you needed to know regarding the opposition, whether it was an individual or what they were going to face as a player or as a as a team, you know. And, but that, that's taken for granted now. But he he did that. It is now, Joe, but I'm listening to what you've said about Bobby and Eric, what you learned, the habits you learned at Morton. Although this was a, a big step for even a talented young man, it was, it was still a big step you'd made. I imagine that when these things were happening and he was briefing you all, at the time it made perfect common sense to you that you would prepare. Is that fair or, or was it kind, did it feel a bit new and odd? Not really, um, because when I, went, when I went to Leeds, everything at Leeds was, was professional. Um, it was a way that, and I, I wouldn't know, I, I couldn't really compare it with, with, all I could compare it with Morton. And I've got to say Morton were all right, but I was a part-time at Morton and I was only full-time for two or three months, but everything at Morton was fine. Uh, but when I went to Leeds, everything was professional. Everything was, what had to be done, was done. It was run with the same habits and disciplines that Don Revy gave to the players, and the players took that on board when they crossed the line. And I think that was one of their, their big strengths, you know, to, to be, because now, again, as time is, is shown there, and unless you have these values in a, in a football team and club, you cannot be successful. And you cannot be successful uh, for a, a period of time. You, you, you have got to have a, like a, f- a philosophy, you've got to have a way of playing, you've got to have a way of running the club. And until that's sorted out, you may get an odd break where you get a cup or something like that, but you will not have consistency, you will not be competing year in, year out. You may not win, but the th- great thing about Leeds United was, and it's unfortunate in a way, was because they, they came second numerous times. But the following year, they were there again. They competed and they, the knockback that they'd had, they got up and they would go again. And that was down to the determination and the way things were run by Don Revy. 
and um, you and he had ups and downs. Um, Frankie's question. Paddy Connolly, Jim McLean. Paddy, Paddy was a, a teammate of mine at Dundee United and, and a, still a very good friend of mine, actually. One, one of my best friends in football, to be fair. And uh, I think there was a common bond between a lot of the younger players at Dundee United because of the environment that we were in. You know, it was a very harsh environment. It was not harsh in terms of the day-to-day of being a professional footballer, of course, that's not harsh. But in terms of, you know, the level of criticism, you know, and, and, and you know, how you were treated when you, at times when you were out of the team was, was, was so harsh at times. And you felt so, you never got a valid reason, you know what I mean? You, just, you, were just, you could just be cast aside. Sometimes you were cast aside for months. You know, it was, you know, you were totally, I was cast aside for about seven months at Dundee United where I barely played a game over a contract dispute. You know, I was in the last year, just totally cast aside. And Jim McLean, you know, he goes back to the era of the great Scottish Steen, obviously. You know, like Jim McLean was uh, our Jock Steen's assistant, I think, in the 82 World Cup, isn't that correct? I think. Yeah, so, I mean, that showed the regard that Jock Steen had for Jim McLean. And Jim McLean was a genius in many ways. He was ahead of his time. You know, we always looked at every angle to try and to, try and to um, make things better. You know what I mean? Like when you look back, like sports science, strength conditioning, psychology, uh, we were exposed to all of those things at Dundee United. All of them. We trained hard. We were given. You know, we were constantly um, from above. You know, you don't do enough. You don't do enough. These are too privileged. You constantly that you were you were hit with that constantly. You know what I mean? You need to do more. And in many ways, it was right. The, the, the only problem was the delivery of the message was always so harsh. And how it was delivered to you is that you probably, if it had been delivered with a little bit more softer touch to it, a little bit more empathy with you, you know, I know you're going through a tough time here, but we can get you... It was always done in such a harsh uh, way that, you know, players tended to drift away from it. From a club point of view, like Jim, I mean, basically, as a manager, you couldn't have... He, he, he created it the perfect situation. You know, he had long-term contracts for players. The players who played in the team got the most money. Mm. So he had always got that stranglehold. Like, there was no one at Dundee United strolling about on big wages not contributing, like what you get in the modern game now. And he put that all together. You know, he, he, he gave himself such a, a amount of control at the club that through the contractual situation, obviously the board situation, all of those kind of things, that basically it was his club. It was his club. And, and so... How he managed the players, he was answerable to no one really in, in relation to that. You know, it wasn't as if you were in a situation to say, Well, I think I've been harshly treated here by the manager, I might, you know, speak to the board or whatever. That didn't exist. You just were like, You were harshly treated, get on with it. I take you back to playing for Fulham and moving in with the boss. Yes. Being a squatter. Unbelievable. In a flat above Harrods. Incredible. It's alleged that your duties were the cooking. Absolutely. I want to know. What did you cook? What was your speciality dish? And what does King Kevin like to eat over Thursday night? Baked beans on toast or what? I tell you what's the funniest of all, Graham. You, you know London very well, so you know where we are. Night, night Bridge. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Unbelievable. Honestly, incredible. Obviously, Kevin was the manager. I was a player. Wasn't a coach, I was a player. Yeah. But I had the chance to live with him. So on a Monday morning, we would get the train from Newcastle. So I would get the six o'clock train. It would be 6.30 at Darlington. So he got on his Darlington. We arrived into London at 10 to 9, get the tube across London into the training ground, and then that was us for the rest of the week. So training ground, 
Harrods, training ground Harrods. So anyway, what happened was, basically, he said, you're in charge of food, Pedro. So I could stay at the training ground all day, and he would have meetings with Mr. Fayed, and But there would be times when, not bored, but I didn't need to be in the meeting or whatever, or I didn't think it was my place, so mm. I would go back. So you know where I am. I was walking along Cromwell Road to Sainsbury's, which is by the Marriott Hotel, 24 hours. On the red, on yeah, the red yeah. line where the cars was yeah, by. It's right across absolutely. the Marriott. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm going there to get the food, right? So whatever it may be, um, you like the steak, so anyway. So obviously I'm doing that. And, and to be fair to him, a lot of times, Graham, it's almost a myth in the sense that we'd just go out. Because where we are in Harrods, you literally go anywhere and have a meal. And I don't mean that in a horrible way. So anyway, we're doing this. But anyway, he said to me one day, he said, uh, Pedro, what's the story with the food? Where are you getting the food from? <laughs> I said, well, Sainsbury's that we drive past to on the training ground, on the training ground run, on the right, you know, about a mile up the road. You're kidding me. I said, well, not in a horrible way. Where the fuck am I supposed to get <laughs> so, anyway, so anyway, he said, I've got a Harrods card. <laughs> so like, wow, you're telling me, I've been there three months, walking up and down this road, <laughs> I've got a Harris card. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Not with t-shirt and bags and a no, ball. To be fair, time. I didn't have a ball. This time. I did have the bags. That was when, that was when they give you bags for free. Yeah. But uh, no, you could have so, had caviar on toast so, every night. And so, to be fair, Graham, every Friday, if we were at home, Sandra would bring my two kids down. So my two kids at the time, Graham, were probably eight and four or nine and five. So what she used to do? So my kids went to school in Jesmond in Newcastle. As soon as they come out of school, she used to go across Newcastle, get onto the train, and come down. For that weekend, we would live in the same flat as Kevin Keegan. And he would be doing tricks with my kids. Stupid tricks, like Tommy Cooper tricks. And <laughs> honestly, like, wearing coats. And, like, like, the old Tommy Cooper trip where you pull the coat and, like, the coat comes off and your shirt's still on. And, wow, unbelievable. Honestly, he did some unbelievable things. And, and just treat them like kings, honestly. But on a Saturday morning, we used to go across to Harrods for my pre-match breakfast on Kevin's card. So... <laughs> That was about the best thing I got of it. Cornflakes and quail's eggs. To be fair, yeah. No, uh, Cornflakes, I wouldn't go for quail's eggs. No, it was bacon and eggs. That for my, for my routine, Graham, for almost 20 years would have been bacon and eggs breakfast. Yeah. No pre-match, bacon and eggs breakfast. And orange juice. You haven't done too badly on it. No, no. No, no. Yeah. It, I'm eating too many Mars bars now, but apart from that... You're sorry about the total, Lauren. So anyway, come on, get to the game. We've never mentioned... Roma. Roma are, we're playing Roma in Rome. We're Liverpool. We're Liverpool. They've got World Cup winners. They've got Cerezo and Falcao, two great Brazilian midfield players. So we've never mentioned them. So the Tuesday night before the Wednesday game, we arrive at Tuesday afternoon, train in the stadium on a Tuesday night. We go to bed. I'll tell you the full story because it is, I think it is quite how we describe it. Kenny and I are in the room together. So we get into bed, sensible. The telly's blaring next door, so banging on the, the wall, nothing. I go out, bang on the door, nothing. Phone down, someone comes up to try, nothing. So eventually we get to sleep. Wake up in the morning, Wednesday morning. We're coming out our room, and the person coming out of the room next door where all the noise was, was our manager. <laughs> it was Joe Fagan. I said, boss, I said, you kept us awake all night. I said, sorry, boys, we, we opened the second bottle of scotch last night. <laughs> it was a long night. <laughs> So then, that's the Wednesday morning. So they've arranged a training ground for us, which we turn up and it's a ploughed field, so we don't train. Then we come back, so we don't train, we just have a walk. We come back to the hotel. We're having our lunch. Joe stood up, tapped his glass, asked the waiters to leave 
And we're all nudging ourselves saying, what's he going to say? Because we never had team meetings. No one ever spoke. We've not mentioned Roma. So he stood up and we're all nudging. What's he going to say? So he stood up and he was looking up at the ceiling and he said, big game tonight. Um, these are a good team. They must be a good team. Won the championship last year. Final European Cup. He's talking to himself. <laughs> and then he said, um, can't be as good as us. Now the bus leaves at 5.30. Make sure no one's late. That was the team top. <laughs> never knew it. we didn't know we never spoke about their players we knew that some big players and we went out and they were frightened to death of us we played them off the park was, was he much of a disciplinarian I, I... yeah he was yeah he was, he was quite he was quite tough uh, or sometimes really? very tough yeah very tough I mean he <laughs> I remember 1990 in the World Cup there's a great story about with Gazza and Chrissy Waddle where We've organised a players' night out. This is like four days before the Republic of Ireland game in Sardinia. So we've, me and Chris Woods did a bit of a recce a few days before, found the bar. So he said to Chrissy Waddle, come on, Chrissy Waddle and Gaza, come on, let's go down there for a few drinks. So the word got about, and in the end, it was about nine or ten of us, like John Barnes and Brian Robson and everybody else. Chris Woods was my roommate, so we all went down, organised the cars, got down there and came back. As we came back at midnight, wherever it was, because you, know, you think you're invisible, I had a good few, about six or seven pints, because it was a bit stir-crazy in the World Cup yeah. prior to the first game. Brian Robson's gone up to Gaza's room, tried to lift his bed, and as he's lifted his bed, the bed that Gaza's on, Gaza fell out of bed, the bed slid along the tile floor and took his right toenail half off. Oh, yeah. his, 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 his right foot, his, his big toenail. Yeah. Blood everywhere. Gaza says, uh, stick it in the bidet. So Brian Pop puts it in the bidet, and Gaza turns on the hot tap, which made it even worse. <laughs> so then the doctors have to be called. We're, we're all asleep, obliviously. So anyway, the next step, next morning, half eight, Don out on the door, team meeting, team meeting, and I'm like, oh, we've been rumbled, we've been rumbled here, because you've got a bit of a thick head. So we go around, team meeting, and Bobby went right through us. He went right through us. You have wrecked your chances. The captain of your country could be out of the World Cup. How am I going to explain that to the, to the press? He says, I'm going to go in the room next door and I want you all to come through in that room. He said, all come through, those that were out. He says, and apologise to me and apologise to your country. So I said, oh, right. So, so I said to Woodsy, come on, Woodsy, we're going. He says, I'm not going. I said, well, you're not going. He says, he says, all right for you. He says, you've had an international career. Mine could be over. He said, I'm not having one yet. Mark, man. So, so you think, I've got, so I'm going to go through. So I went through to the next door. And I had a bit of a beard at the time because I, I think I was on the verge of not playing and all that sort of thing in the World Cup, 1990. So, because Mark Wright was there and Des Walker was yeah. there, and I said it was yeah. a really good squad. Yeah. So uh, I go through, and then Chrissy Waddle standing behind Bobby Robson with Gazza. Bobby Robson sat down because they've been in first, and they've obviously sat. So he, when Bobby Robson went through me, I knew it would be you. You're always a ringleader. You've got this problem with alcohol, and that. so he went through me. And, oh, I says, I'm really sorry, Gaffer, and that sort of thing, and humbly apologise, which I did, and all that sort of thing. And then Gazza's behind the gaffer and he's making faces at me. I'm getting angry and, I, and, I, and he's being some stupid face, so I start laughing. And that made Bobby worse because it's, it's not a funny thing. It's no laughing matter, butcher, and all this way. So anyway, he finished it off. He said, and then what he, his finishing line was, and another thing, butcher, you're ugly. <laughs> and of course, Gazza and Chrissy Waddle just burst out laughing. And he says, right now, go, clear off, and bring the next ones in. And I don't know who else, who else came. I went, I, Gazza went out before me, and I've chased Gazza around the pool trying to kill him. I got hold of him eventually and batted him, but I, I thought I mean, you were Only Bobby could go. Only Bobby could do that. There was an expletive there, so I didn't put it in. And you're beep, beep, ugly. 
<laughs> but he used to, but he was so funny. Some of the things he used to say would just, just make you laugh. He didn't deliberately be funny, but sometimes <laughs> the, he used to say the funniest things and we'd be, we'd be rolling around laughing. And all that sort of what was it with him in names? How on earth? You know, because he was a bright, intelligent, curious man. All, I mean, look, look, look what the heck he did in having gone abroad and won trophies in Portugal, Holland, yeah. Spain. But he couldn't get names. Well, well, did that not seem a bit strange? The famous one no, is that he's, he's, he's yeah. manager of England. In the lift. Brian's yeah. captain of England. Bobby comes down and... Morning, Bobby. <laughs> no, morning, morning, Brian. Mor- no, morning, Bobby. Morning, Bobby and Brian's Brian like, says, no, no, boss. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Brian, you're Bobby. That's true. Because he used to... There's another story about him in the World Cup in 1986. We went to Colorado Springs for high-altitude training, Mm. the Air Force Academy uh, base on that sort of thing, Top Gun base. So we were there and having having a great time. Fantastic facility. He comes along, he says, uh, I forgot my boots. Everybody got size nine boots that they spare ones. So Glenn Ola said, yeah, I've got a brand new pair, Bobby. Boom. Adidas, I think they went through him and he caught it. So we did a two-hour session, which we were doing then to acclimatise for Mexico. And Bobby comes back in, he goes, he says, threw it threw back at Glenn, he says, they're never nine. He says, that's a number upside down, it should be six. She says, you're joking, they're brand new. He says, I know, but my feet, you're killing me. So Glenn has a look, and in, in the, because they're brand new boots, in the boots, it's still the paper. <laughs> and it, it, then the whole train, Bobby had read about the whole training session with the paper in the boots. It was sensational, I mean, they're legendary tales, but the players love him more for it, because at the end of the day, he doesn't mean to be funny, and he's, but he said some of the things he said and did, you honestly are priceless, they really were. But that bonded you towards him even more because it was like, you know, there but for the grace of God go I sort of thing. Only one man in this room has been coached by Jose Mourinho. That's right. Did you make your peace with him after Seville? And did you see a different side of the Jose Mourinho that I saw when he was the Real Madrid manager and he was caught up in Machiavelli and stuff? He was an angry man. In those days, the soccer aid thing, like the offer came in. Uh, my agent phoned me up and just goes, "Do you play football?" And I was just going, "Well, I play about a five sides at goals in Drumchapel. What do you mean by football?" And he's going, uh, "It's basically soccer aids every two years, and they're looking for like a rest of the world celebrities and ex whatever." So I'm always a bit like celebrity stuff. It's like I don't really see myself as that. Anyway, that's my own sort of. Hang on. Neurosis or whatever you want to call it. I said, who's playing? I don't want to hear the celebrities. Who's the footballers? And he's going to Clarence Seedorf, Edwin van der Star, Yap Stam, <laughs> Alessandro Del Piero, Andre Shevchenko, <laughs> coached by Mourinho. And he goes, need, they need you for training for four days and then the game on the Sunday. And I'm going, wow, obviously I'll, obviously I'll play. I've never been on a living side pitch before, except for a few daft kickabout games and like, other comedy festivals and stuff, so I signed up for it. You're thinking, like, surely Mourinho's not going to show up every day. So we got there on the Monday, it was a welcome night. I get in the lift, I dump my bags in the hotel, get told the penthouse of the hotel was the welcome drinks night. Dump my bag, get in the lift. The lift door opens, and I went to walk out, presuming it was my floor, and it was Mourinho and his assistant kind of looking about a bit lost. And I was like, I never knew what to say, I was just going, Josie. And he goes, are you going to the penthouse? And I was like, yes, mate, the soccer aid, because I had the polo shirt on. And he's in the lift, just kind of, I was like, looking forward to this week. And he's going, ah, oh, yeah, it should be fun. It's a bit of small talk. I thought that'd maybe be the last I would see him, but the mm. next day, he's there every day, training, first guy there, mm. doing the training drills. 
had quite a tight hamstring, right? So I had to tell the physio that I'd been trying to get fit for it and then trying to get fit, I'd end up even less fit. I'd pulled a muscle Too or whatever. Much. So I get told I had an underactive glute and I couldn't train. <laughs> an underactive glute. That's, that's something my mum would call me when I was <laughs> refusing to go to bed. So I had to get acupuncture and... <laughs> It was a uh, Fulham's ground, Fulham's training ground. So the physios are like, putting needles in. I'm, even the novelty of that, like in Jamie Redknapp, he was getting treatment. There we go. Stereotypes. He was getting the treatment beside me. So I'm on the treatment table and just wow. A bit of years going right. The novelty of getting treatment wears off pretty fast when Mourinho's out there taking a training session. So on the last day, I managed to get training mm-hmm. and I scored a goal right. But it was only because I'd well, maybe doing myself a discredit. In the training, Mourinho was like showing us how to take an offensive corner, right? Uh-huh. So, well, how to take it out. Basically, offensive corners and defence. We're working on the defence and then a corner was coming in. So I was in the team with the non-bibs, so it's our team's corner. Mm-hmm. So he's telling me where I have to be. Mm-hmm. He's showing me these notepads and stuff, but it's, I'm like, I can't believe you're talking to me, mate, <laughs> rather than following his instructions. <laughs> so I never knew what to do, right? So Seedorf's <laughs> taking the corner and I'm going, how do you, what do you say when you're looking for the ball? It's not like goals on a Tuesday night in Chapel <laughs> shouting Craigie or something. So I'm going, what do you say? So I'm going like, eh, Clarence, before it was even out my mouth, he just zinged this pass to me. And it was coming far too, I'm panicking, I'm not going to be able to control this. So I, I, only because I hadn't followed Mourinho's instructions, I'd came short for the corner rather than go to the edge of the box. It's just knackered to even get into the box. So Mourinho, he must have thought I went against him. But I, maybe I liked that, I expressed myself a wee bit, right? So I've shouted Clarence, he's knocked the bottom of me, so I feel like I kind of angle just to the right of the goal. I've kind of curled it up. And it's been, I've just hit it because I was panicking about being unable to control it. So I've just put a toe through it, but it's been right up. Oh, you like a Beckham, right in the side net on the faraway goal. In the net, everybody's cheering. Goal I swear to God, this happened. Goal I know it seems like I think it was on the highlights package, right? On the, the build up show. They're all applauding. Mourinho's going, Where has that been all week? My secret <laughs> weapon. <laughs> right. I can't believe it. Clarence has given me a high five. Good, nice goal, man. But I didn't want to tell them, obviously. So in the canteen afterwards, Van der Sar walks up and he goes, uh, nice goal, man. <laughs> and I said, oh, cheers, Edwin. And he's going, uh, it's hard to read the miss hits. I'm going, you big prick. <laughs> <laughs> and I, so I mentioned the two Nakamura put by him and he's <laughs> laughing. But anyway, I sat beside Marino on the bus up from London to Manchester on the day of the game. Where you play at? Old Trafford. Old Trafford. So on the Saturday, it was funny. Mourinho was telling us that anybody that's late on the bus at Chelsea... They just get told to get a taxi. The bus leaves on time, no matter what they... So we're waiting for ages. Nobody knows who we're waiting on. Mourinho, he sits at the back of the bus, which I quite liked, <laughs> rather than the gaffer at the front. One of the, like, the BAM fans sits up the back. So he's going, who, who are we waiting on, man? Fucking hell, who are we waiting on? And it turns out it was Adam Richman for Man vs. Food. Okay. So he walks on, and Mourinho sees it was... He's going, fucking hell, I thought we were waiting on Maradona. <laughs> so like, he's quite sharp, but... Uh, I'm sitting, I was on the aisle seat, he was on the other aisle seat, so it's like a five-hour bus journey, and we just get talking about, became like a Q&A sort of thing, just mm. asking him about, I was showing him my football manager on my iPad, <laughs> I was managing a wee non-league team called Workington in the Blue Square North, but it was in like season 2035, so I'm showing Mourinho, and he's laughing, and I was like, look, they've shown him the news, and they said they'd built a statue of me and all that sort of stuff, and he's gone 2035, I'm like, mate, I'm a legend. I'm showing him what, <laughs> the history. I'd won five European Cups. <laughs> Many of you don't know who's in his life. <laughs> then I, I, was, I was showing him my tactics and how I like to t- keep the team like, pressing, keep the passes short. Mm-hmm. And then he's asking me if you're playing pressing football, the players need to be fit. 
I'm going, of course, man. Oh, you're talking to a guy that's won five European Cups, Jose. <laughs> showing him all the players' stamina is at 20, that's the highest attribute. And then he was just laughing and he showed me his iPad with all, this, like, all the match data and stuff for Chelsea that season. Or how in-depth it is. Was, but just a real thing, he knew I was into my football and stuff like that, so it was really phenomenal. Just it's a gift, eh? Him, right? Yeah, it's fair to say Kevin's football career didn't really reach the heights that was promised by that scorcher he scored against Edwin van der Sar. But you'll go a long way before you find a better storyteller in these parts or anywhere in the world. We all hope you enjoyed not just Kevin's great tales, but all of those accounts of managers who found different ways to create indelible memories in the minds of our guests. The big interview is produced by Backpage and me. The music is by Beer Jacket, and it's blooming good. There are more new interviews in the way very soon. For now, thanks for being there. Thanks for listening. We do this for you. We do this for you. We do this for you, our lovely audience. We do this for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.